Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 18. First Samuel chapter 18, as we uh, continue to work our way through this marvelous uh, book of Scripture. Uh, it's the ninth book in, in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible handy, there's some at the uh, end of the pews. It's right after Joshua and Judges, right before you get to First uh, and Second Kings. And we are uh, pivoting in a sort of way this week and really last week, uh, moving from the focus being on Samuel, this uh, prophet, uh, first prophet slash last uh, uh, judge who comes at the beginning of the book of, of Samuel and then King Saul, uh, now into the focus being primarily on King uh, David. And I want to mention to you one other uh, resource. I didn't purchase any of these to have available, but maybe I'll include it in the Creek Week. And this is a great uh, book that's just about the life of David. And it sort of charts the, the scope of all that God is doing redemptively in places like First and Second Samuel. It's called After God's Own Heart, the Gospel According to, uh, to David. So it looks for those redemptive themes there. And it's a, a resource certainly I've been drawing from or will be drawing from as we go through our messages. And it might be something that... Uh, that, again, you would want to pick up just to follow along for the David section that we're going to go through the next uh, number of weeks in in uh, first Samuel. Uh, even if we're familiar, perhaps, with the story, the account here and the antagonism that forms between uh, Saul, King Saul, the current king and David, who's been anointed to be the the next king. Even if we're familiar with that story, we might forget what this passage today highlights. So. You know, the remainder of 1 Samuel is going to be a lot about this conflict between David and Saul. But we might kind of forget where that is conceived, where it begins. And it really centers around, once again, Saul's insecurity and resultant envy that he has towards David. We're going to see that. And and it's going to be enlightening for us as we think about our relationships with friends, with family members, with co-workers, with church members. How insecurity and envy can be prone to undercut those relationships. And then in contrast, we're going to see Jonathan, the the son of Saul. So the person who's next in line to be king uh, in terms of his heritage. How Jonathan, amazingly, in contrast to Saul's insecurity and envy, Jonathan trusts that God is working out his good, sovereign plan. Even in having David become king Instead of him. And he's able not only to to tolerate David because of that, but to love David, to love him in a deep friendship. And so we want to see today, as we think about our relationships, as we think about that topic we call friendship, how trusting in God's sovereign goodness actually informs dramatically how we relate to one another. We'll see it here in our verses today. We're not going to read the entire chapter. I know you'll breathe a sigh of relief there. But in 1 Samuel chapter 18, if you uh, have turned there, we want to read uh, verses 1 through 16 today. Read along with me uh, silently as I read aloud. And we'll see these themes come to light, I think, very quickly. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, this is right after Goliath has been killed. The soul of Jonathan was knit To the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. You recall he's already been working, playing music, if you will, for Saul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. 
And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword, his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, referring to Goliath there, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah Love David, for he went out and came in before them. Let's pray again. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it tells us about your redemptive plan of raising up this king that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ, our king. But we also thank you for this very specific and applicable message today about how Saul sees things and how Jonathan, Jonathan sees things and how it dramatically affects their relationships. Lord, I pray that you would teach us through it, that our relationships, our friendships even would be strengthened by what we learned today. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, you thought your boss was hard to deal with. How'd you like to be in David's situation? Just trying to do his job, play music for the king, defeat enemies of the people of God, knock back the Philistines on their heels. And what does he get in return? Literally spears flying at him. Right. So I think about David, I think about uh, my early uh, married years in a much uh, tamer work environment. We uh when Patience and I were first married, we lived in a little uh, one-bedroom apartment on the second story in a building in, uh, in St. Louis. And I, I worked at a, at a Swiss restaurant waiting tables to kind of, you know, pay for food and rent. She was working as a nanny at the time. It was this little Swiss bakery, and it was funny because they actually had guys back who were from Switzerland. And they kind of reminded me of the, uh, the Swedish chef from Sesame Street, you know, you know, that guy. They were kind of like they wore the hats and they had the whole the whole get up and they, they made some some good, good food. But uh, it was a good job. I was thankful for it. But the interesting thing was the owner and uh, most of the employees 
uh, were from a Jehovah's Witness background. And they were particularly assertive in this belief. And, and it was an interesting place to work regardless because the, the owner and his, his son was the manager. It was a family business. So he had the father and son dynamic. And the, the son, was not, he wasn't as particularly religious as the others. But he, he would come and he would just, on a whim, kind of pinpoint somebody. And, and, you know, put them to the wall and grill them about some issue, the waiting staff or the, the checkout people or the cooks in the kitchen or whatever. He was always interesting to deal with. But the, the owner was even more. He was actually from uh, Switzerland and, and, and he was so assertive about his faith and knew kind of where I stood in my Christian belief. And, and so he would sometimes take three distinctive food items and put them on a plate. And he would walk up to me and, and use it as an illustration to critique uh, the Christian view of the triune God, of the Trinity and so forth. How three uh, food items could, could be the same thing. He, he would give me a hard time whenever he could. Uh, I, I didn't have any objects thrown at me. Probably most of us don't have them thrown at us in our relationships. But we all know, whether it's work relationships, let's be honest, whether it's marriage relationships or whether it's friendships, uh, sometimes we feel like we're having spears thrown at us and we don't even know why we can't even grasp it. And we're reminded here of the impact that envy can have, that insecurity, that not trusting in God can have on our relationships. Maybe we are that person that throws the spears on a whim, a bit passive aggressive because of our own insecurity. And we see in contrast here this incredible picture. Do, do you get it with Jonathan? You, you got Saul, and that's kind of crazy. It's dramatic because these spears are flying. But isn't it even more amazing to look at Jonathan and what he does? He's got every reason, really, to despise David. He does. Uh, Saul's kind of bearing the consequences of his actions, but Jonathan hasn't been involved in that. He's been doing the right thing, and yet he, he, he's not in line to be the next king. David is. And yet his response is one of love and of trust and of embracing David. Why? Well, we've already seen earlier. He has incredible confidence in God. He believes in God's sovereign plan, his God, God's sovereign goodness that would be worked out for him. So as we look through this passage then today, we might uh, highlight this main idea. And you can follow along in your sermon notes section at the end of your worship guide if you want to. I hope this will make sense. It's just this. The, the whole thing centers to me around the truth that, that is implied, is implicit in all of 1 Samuel, that God is sovereign and good. Okay? God is sovereign and good. So we can pursue friendship even with those who seem superior and resist envy to those to whom we feel inferior. Wouldn't that be awesome? If we could actually learn how to do that, to pursue friendship, to pursue and welcome and love those who are superior to us in their gifts or character or quality and love them for it instead of being jealous or envious and despising them for it. And, and, and that we could resist envy, uh, resist envy of those to whom we feel inferior. I mean, when we think about it, relationships shape our lives, don't they? If you've got a close friendship and it's out of whack, if you've got a marriage relationship and it's upside down, if you've got a work relationship with somebody you work closely and it's not jiving, it colors all of life, doesn't it? It just affects us day to day. It might go on for days, for weeks, for months, for years, but it affects us. And, uh, and we can get into uh, ruts where, you know, we find ourselves a lot like Saul, don't we? 
We find ourselves envious and critiquing others instead of realizing the good blessing of the others around us. Find ourselves as part of the uh, problem. On the flip side, we sometimes take our good, close relationships for granted, right? Those who do love us, who do look past our faults, who who don't uh, envy us or don't conflict with us. We sort of take them for granted and don't appreciate it. This is a passage that reminds us of the beauty of those relationships God invites us into. Ultimately, as we get to the end of our time today, we're going to see how all of this even, all of this friendship theme, all of how trusting God's sovereign goodness for our relationships is fulfilled in Christ, in his perfect love for us. That he said of himself, referring to himself, no greater love has someone than for a friend to lay down his life for him. And indeed, Jesus fulfilled that to us as the ultimate friend. Well, let's pick this apart for a minute here and take a look at Saul first. This is found particularly in verses uh, 6 through uh, 16. We won't go back through all of that again. I think you get the picture. Saul is incredibly insecure and therefore uh, destructive. He has these great external qualities, but they're actually a liability for them. And that's something for us to think about today. If you happen to be gifted with certain skills or beauty or natural leadership or whatever it is, things that the world would be uh, impressed by, it's easy to put security in that instead of in God. And believe it or not, that affects our relationships, where our security lies. Uh, Saul seems to forget so quickly that he's actually supposed to be working for the Lord, right? This was God's job that was given to, to him. This was, this was something that God uh, set up for him. It, it wasn't his plan, really. Remember, he was graciously selected by God's sovereign plan to be in this role. And he also seems to forget that he's already messed up a bunch of stuff. And he doesn't really deserve to still have the role. Yet he clings to it because he doesn't have a picture of God's sovereign goodness and the blessing of just walking in that trust and faith in his life. So he's throwing spears. And the question for us today, again, is uh, where are those places in our life where we're like that? Where we have difficulties and conflicts and relationships, and the real reason is that we don't trust God's good, sovereign plan for what's happening with other people around us. We're not resting in that. So we feel like we've got to seize control of what's happening. Maybe we're like that in marriage conflicts. Maybe if you take a look at it sincerely and look at your difficulties with friendships that you have or ongoing family conflicts, you'd say, you know what? Actually, that that does explain a lot of what's going on. And I need to bring that to the Lord and start to to work on that. Well, the contrast here is dramatic as well. When we see uh, Jonathan, we've mentioned it already Uh, on the surface. These these. Sections of the passage don't even really seem to go together, right? If you just on the surface read, okay, Jonathan really likes David, and you're like, Saul is throwing spears at him. What's the connection? They're declaring all these great things that David has done in contrast to Saul. But but when you look at it, they're, they're really meant to be set right side by side and remind us of how Saul believes, that, or how Jonathan believes that God's working on his plan, and so he's able to love David very deeply. Makes me think of the uh, movie probably a number of us have, have seen, uh, Saving Private Ryan. Definitely not one for the, uh, the kiddos, but I guess worth us uh, making reference to today on this Memorial Day. Um, so, you know, so probably one that most of us have, have seen, I'm imagining here, even though we maybe wouldn't, uh, wouldn't consider that a, a family film to be sure. 
But it's interesting, you remember the story of Saving Private Ryan is this account of uh, this captain, this is Captain Miller, played by uh, the character t- played by Tom Hanks. And, and he's assigned a squad of soldiers that are kind of pulled off the front lines around the time of D-Day, and they're sent off to rescue this one Private Ryan. They're sent to rescue him because he's the last surviving son of, I think it was four sons, The other three had already died in the course of World War Two and one of them just recently. And so the the higher ups, the powers that be, send them on this mission. And and you remember, they run into quite a a lot of difficulty and struggle on the way. And they sort of doubt their mission. And Captain Miller reminds them along the way that the issue is not about uh, who this this private Ryan is or his value inherently. It's about what he represents. It's about what he symbolizes and that they can trust that that their assignment they've been given is a good assignment and walk in it. Well, how much more can we with the the one that we know as the the loving God directing us and directing our relationships trust that that when we're called to maybe sacrifice to maybe have to trust God to love those around us that maybe don't seem as lovable that that we can do that. We can have strength from the Lord for that purpose. Take a look with me at these verses again, verse uh, chapter 18, verses, uh, well, starting in verse 2, uh, verse 3. It says, Then Jonathan made a covenant <clears throat> with David because he loved him as his own soul. Describes him giving his, uh, symbolically giving his sort of uh, uh, position, if you will, to David by taking off his armor and his sword and so forth. And then it comes back again and says that, uh, that he, he loved him so very deeply. You know, it's a a sad thing, unfortunately, that I need to address here, that some have taken this passage because, and and later on in the verses, there's a section where David, uh, Jonathan actually says that he, he, uh, David actually says that he loves Jonathan more than the love of women. And so some have sadly, in their attempt to kind of advance an agenda related to uh, same-sex issues, taken this relationship and sadly degraded it and said that this is somehow a biblical relationship of that type of of intimacy. It's a really sad thing that folks would say that about this passage, because actually it's a beautiful illustration of God ordained men loving one another deeply and passionately in a way that probably a lot of us men should be challenged to do. But maybe we're fearful of being perceived as having too close of a relationship. So we stay back from it. Isn't it a picture of that? Well, Jonathan, there's no uh, incorrect or ungodly love between these two. These two are just what we would call bosom buddies. They're best of friends. They're ready to, to serve and give their lives for one another. And in particular, where we see here a powerful word, you've probably heard it before. It's a Hebrew word. Uh, it's, it's the word hesed. Hesed. And it conveys this idea of covenant faithfulness and love, of a deep commitment to one another. Now, usually in our friendships, uh, we just have a cursory connection and we we show our, our love and connection by spending time with one another in our sort of deepest human commitment. I guess that of marriage, we do make a covenant bond and commit to one another. Usually in friendships, we don't uh, in mere friendships, we don't do that. But in this case, Jonathan takes that extra step of making this covenant, this commitment. And I thought it was interesting to illustrate how he's able to love even this one who who could very easily be viewed as a threat 
as an adversary. And it reminds me of something, one application point, and then I want to talk about friendship for a minute. But uh, one application point that uh, that a mentor challenged me on uh, to, to sort of reveal and diagnose where we see this issue of envy and insecurity instead of trusting in our relationships. And that is that, that, that when we talk about people around us, even our friends and those that we're close to, do we feel like we always have to add in the word but to our description of them? I mean it this way. She's really good at math, but she can't sing all that well. Yeah, he's quite a salesman, but he doesn't seem to make it to church all that often. Yeah, she's an amazing mother, but she doesn't do as much community service as others. Yeah, he can lead music in the church, but he seems a bit overbearing. Right. We see that envy, that little bit of insecurity come to light when we can't just give a compliment to people around us and let it be. We can't just say a good thing about those around us. We have to always bring in something that but and then say something a little bit negative about them. Maybe you're not guilty of that. I find that in my conversations and it's a disappointing thing. It identifies in me some insecurity that I can't just be thankful for the people around me and the gifts that God has given them. Well, it's interesting, this topic of friendship, we don't hear it talked about much. And I want to draw for a minute here from a book. And ladies, don't don't check out because this is going to relate to both the, the, the men and women here. But it's from a book by Dan Doriani called The Life of a God-Made Man. And some actually my men's group did it uh, recently, and I've done it a number of times over the years with men's group. It's not your most uh, well-known men's book, but to me, it's actually one of the better ones uh, ones out there. But he has a chapter, interestingly enough, on a topic that I've almost never seen treated really in Christian literature. You won't find it in any of those great books I've put out on the table, to my knowledge. And that is the topic of friendship. What is friendship? How do we maintain it? How do we develop it? And yet it's such a central part of our life. It's a central part of our church community as well. I want to speak to it for a minute today. You can see in your worship guide in the notes section, there's a one statement from Doriani. He says this. He said the church itself is more than a little ambiguous about friendship. Churches gather for fellowship and community, but do not promote gatherings for friendship. Historically, the church has advocated spiritual direction where mentors lead novices towards discipleship. But the church seldom mentions the mutual direction that friends offer each other as peers. It's not hard to see why friendship has become the forgotten form of love. He goes on to mention the challenge that we have with friendship, right? The agape love, as the New Testament calls it, that we're supposed to show as Christians is supposed to be indiscriminate, right? That's kind of the epitome of love, where we, we love even our enemies. We love those outside the church. We put flyers in mailboxes to people that we don't even know because we love them and want to see them come to kids camp and be blessed by it, right? That kind of love is the pinnacle. And so we have a little bit of a hard time with friendship because it's selective, It has some exclusivity to it, right? We choose our friends. Not everybody is our friend. And so it's tough for us in the church to to talk about it because it it seems like it's inappropriate somehow. I like uh, what Doriani mentions uh, at another point in the chapter. He says, not only do friends make people feel good about themselves, they also make others feel bad. 
For to announce you are my friend to someone is by implication to say that you are not to another. The exclusivity, even selfishness, makes the church very uneasy about friendship. Indeed, uh, Doriani is not trying to dismiss our struggle with becoming insular, right? That we have of sometimes forming cliques and just connecting with those that are like us, that think like us or act like us. Goodness, Facebook kind of makes that even worse. You know, if you have anything more than 40 friends, Facebook is going to, if you've got 400 friends on there, Facebook is going to self-select for you. So you, for the most part, only see people who you're clicking on and liking what they say and they're liking what you So our, our, our scope narrows, all right? So there's a danger there. Let's not pretend like there's not. We can become insular. We can have clicks even within the church and we can miss the breadth of friendship. Nevertheless, listen to what Ecclesiastes says. And if we if we just jettison, throw the baby out with the bathwater, we'll be in big trouble because the scriptures talk about the beauty of friendship. Ecclesiastes chapter four. You don't need to turn there, but it says verses uh, nine through twelve. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fail, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly or easily broken. We're reminded here of the beauty of friendship. And the fact is that, you know, guys need some guys. Gals need some gals. That's why we've got some of our small groups and we have those going on during the week. Uh, this summer, I know many of them are taking a, taking a break, but they'll crank back up in just a few months. And if you've been to one of those groups, you know the connection that you can have. Or if you just go to get lunch with a, a buddy and you share. I like what uh, some of the other things that Doriani has to say about this. Let me mention a few more because they were so compelling to me. Uh, this is uh, a bit, you know, a bit tongue in cheek, a bit comical here. He's trying to be. He says, sometimes we need to talk to someone of our own gender. Suppose a woman of unspecified age looks in the mirror and says, I'm getting wrinkled, gray, fat, and ugly. If she tells her husband, he might try to reason her out of it. Quote, you have very few wrinkles and gray hairs for your age. And besides, you can dye your hair. And you're not fat, just a little bit overweight. A woman doesn't want a four-point analysis of her physical condition. She wants sympathy. She might get it from a woman who, she, who knows the melancholy sensation of watching one's beauty fade. Similarly, a man might think, I have no friends. If he tells his wife, <laughs> she might take it personally. I thought, I was your friend. Or she might just feed his self-pity when he really needs someone to talk him out of his funk. It might be best to call an old buddy. Doriani helps us to remember the advantage of having those friendships. Uh, Proverbs 27 also speaks to it. Verses 4 through 5 there in Proverbs. Uh, You're probably familiar with these, but it, it speaks about the fact that wounds from a friend are so beneficial for us. Right. If if an acquaintance or even if if. I, your pastor, get up on Sunday morning or acquaintance speaks to you off to the side and says, hey, you know, we've got a struggle here with greed or we've got a struggle with anger. or There's a a struggle with insecurity or with worry or with lust or with whatever. It can go in one ear and out the other. Let's be honest. Right. But a friend, 
somebody who knows you, who's shown love and commitment to you, and you have shown connection with them, when they come to us and say, you know, I think there's a problem here. I've got a problem, and I'm seeing that same thing in your life, and I'm praying for you. I think it's something we need to work on together. Boy, that, that resonates. We hear that in a way that we wouldn't hear otherwise. Doriani goes on to talk about the challenges, uh, particularly in our different genders, with this idea of friendship. So let me le- read one more section from him. Forgive the length of this. This is so helpful. I thought it'd be good to pass along. Doriani says, uh, says this. He says, unlike most men, women embrace friendship. They're gifted for intimacy. A man might say wired for bonding. They seek friendships and they work at them. If you doubt this, tour your card shop until you find the section labeled friendship. A typical man does not even know that this section exists because he sends cards only when he must, plucking them from his wife's card drawer if possible. He's never sent a friendship card. Women send cards to each other when there's no birthday, no anniversary, birth or illness to demand it. Friendships cards say things like, I sipped my coffee this morning, and I thought of you. Or, I'm glad you're my friend. There are no friendship cards for men. No one has ever tried to launch a line of buddy cards. Marketing departments know better. So he highlights our tendency, our weakness as men, to be a bit aloof and disconnected. He goes on, though, he says, you know, he's not just targeting the guys alone. He says, I do not believe that women outdo men in every way. Every good gift can be abused. Women's friendships are no exception. If the male quest for strength degenerates into autonomy and autocracy, the female quest for socialization can lapse into entanglement and codependency. Women can form cliques and become jealous and gossipy. They can become too enmeshed in their friendship. If one becomes miserable, the other literally commiserates and becomes miserable too. Yet on the whole, women have far more constructive friendships for men for they know how to care about them more. And then one last part that I think will be helpful for us guys in particular to, to track with what we're talking about here. He says, men by, by comparison are careless about friendships, forming them almost accidentally. When men work or play together, it hardly matters who their partners are as long as they're decent fellows who contribute to the goal. For example, suppose a man, we'll call him John, goes to the basketball court looking for a pickup game. John only hopes to get a decent game with some players who know how to pass, play team defense, and work together. A few minutes into the game, John finds that he can already communicate with one teammate, Mike, with a glance, a nod of the head, or a single shouted word. The next week, John is pleased to be on Mike's team again. The third week, John hopes to get on Mike's team. The fourth week, Mike and John arrange to be on the same team as sides are chosen. After three months, Mike and John talk after the game. After seven months... Mike has to move away due to a job transfer. The next week, John goes to play ball without Mike, and it hits him. I miss Mike. He was my friend. (laughs) That's true, isn't it? That's right on target. Well, here's the deal, and you've got some notes in your worship guide. We don't have time for it today about the different nature of of friendships, the good old boy relationships, the one-point friendships, the leader-follower. Ultimately, our hope ought to be to have genuine Friendships, right? And those genuine friendships can ultimately, here's our main point today again, can ultimately only flow out 
of a recognition that, hey, God is sovereign and good. And so he's working in the lives of those around me. And he wants me to have those connections with others around me. And this friendship thing is good for me. And I don't have to be jealous and envious. I can appreciate the other people around me and love them deeply. Well, how do we ultimately do that? We do that through Christ. Think about this theme as we close for just a minute with Christ. Christ was, he he dealt with this stuff the way King David did, right? Uh, Saul had those spears he was throwing at David. Jesus was the most remarkable person ever to walk the face of the earth. The most wonderful being that we would want to be together and engage and spend time with. And yet, what was people's response to him? So many, because of their insecurity, because their lack of trusting God's plan and understanding God's sovereign plan. The leaders of the day, particularly the religious and political leaders, the Romans and the Jews, they feared him. They put him on a cross because of that. That's how intense their envy was of him. If you look at the passages throughout the Gospels, so many of the comments directed to Jesus relate to envy. It's interesting. Even one of the criticism of his, Matthew 11, verse 19, was that Jesus was a friend of who? Friend of sinners. I got a buddy in uh, Milwaukee who's been he's been part of this uh, church planting cohort that I go and have been invited to help lead a bit with. And he's planting a church in the city of Milwaukee. And it's it's called the, the name of the church is called Friend of Sinners. I like that. I like that. Friend of Sinners, Jesus was called. Why? Because of his deep love for us, because he says in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. In Luke 11, you don't have to look there, but Jesus even compares prayer the way that we talk to God about our needs. He says it's like somebody going to a friend when they need a loaf of bread, right? Maybe you've got a recipe you're working on. Maybe you need something. You go get some flour or sugar from a friend. You go to them and they give it to you. He compares prayer to that. He says, God is a friend to us. We know he's holy. We know he's sovereign and he's righteous. But because of the work of Christ, he's our friend. And of course, Jesus demonstrated this probably in the greatest way when he got together with his disciples. And he didn't uh, elevate his position over them because he had the position. But instead, he, he, he trusted That God knew what he was doing and that he could serve those around him just like we can serve in our friendships. And he got down on his hands and feet or hands and knees and he washed their feet. Even Judas, who would turn out to be his enemy. What a picture of friendship. What a blessing to be able to have Jesus be our friend, a friend of sinners, to have covenant love with us. And that ought to change and transform our relationships with one another. Because we're secure in God's sovereign good plan. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we confess that we struggle greatly with insecurity. And our insecurity, because we do not uh, see and meditate and recall regularly the wonderful love that you have for us and the way that you see us as cherished and cared for and perfectly righteous in your sight. We we end up instead being very insecure people who relate to one another as that from that position. Uh, maybe Doriani's right for, for women. Maybe it, it sometimes breeds uh, intertwining and, uh, and uh, a clickishness. Maybe for guys, this breeds an autonomous nature and we don't even want to get close. We know we need to work on this, Lord. 
And we know by your grace and mercy, you can allow us to grow. And I, I pray that friendships would multiply in our church body. We wouldn't be scared of them. Father, I pray that we would develop deep friendships and that you'd be glorified in the midst of them, that iron would sharpen iron. We'd be able to speak into each other's lives. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us to move towards those by your good plan and your good providence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.